We're going to Hebrews in chapter number 12. We will be concluding tonight, whether it takes 10 minutes or 10 hours. (laughs) We might be here a while. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best to be very pointed and you know make the point and move on. Uh, there's some some neat things. A couple of the verses, uh, 26 and 27 of this chapter. Um, I'm gonna admit I can't fully, with absolute, wrap my brain around these verses. Okay, and when I read them, you're gonna say, "Oh, I understand why." So uh, there's there's some some neat things. Hopefully, you'll be able to see the sense of it. And uh, especially the uh, beginning and the end. Verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men, perfect, made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now you know what I'm talking about. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably uh, and with reverence and godly fear. Familiar verse, for our God is a consuming fire. Now Lord, as we open your word tonight, we always need your help. Spirit of God, it is your work to illuminate to the hearts and minds of the the believers your word, its sense. So Lord, I pray that you'll help me as I teach, help help each one of us to be spirit-filled, and Lord, work in hearts. And I don't ever know, Lord, every man, woman that is here, and you do, and you know their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that if there would be anybody here that does not know you as their personal Savior, the Lord, you would work in that heart, drawing them to yourself, and Lord, I pray that you will give them then a confidence in you. Thank you so much for what you'll do this night, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Alrighty, so let's get started. Um, way back, and it's been a long time since I seems like we've been able to teach out of this book, in verses uh, 18 down to 22, it talked about what God had done at Mount Sinai and the, the uh, uh, time period of there being darkness and tempest and these confusions and nobody was allowed to go and even touch the mount or they would end up dying. And he talks about that mount, uh, Zion, and yet in verse 22 he changes that and says that we've not come to that mount which represents the law, but instead we've come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, with an innumerable company of angels. So he's going back and forth now as he's concluding really the major doctrinal part of the book of Hebrews and making the contrast between the law, Old Testament, and grace. 
much of what we have been reading through this, the book of Hebrews, is in reference to the Old Testament, anything from the ceremonial laws, the high priest, the order of Melchizedek, the list goes on and on with what we've learned over the last couple of years. And it seems like that long, hasn't it? (laughs) But anyways, I have no idea when we started. But now that we're coming to this conclusion, he's now kind of uh, giving a big picture of all of this and the purpose of it all. And now he begins in verse 23 to explain this is who this is to, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So we could spend a lot of time in this, just explain it very briefly. The word there, general assembly, is, is a, a Greek form or word that would be for a large, huge amount of people that are coming for a festival, for a sporting event, or something where you just have masses of people of all different types and races all coming together into one place. And so he is saying this is to all those that are in Christ Jesus, in the church, and we are part of the firstborn. Now, I've got to keep moving on this, but to let you know, that phrase firstborn has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And so you and I, because of this being the firstborn, having this first uh, uh, right, if you will, this birthright that is in Christ Jesus, and there again, it goes back to what we learned some time ago about the birthright that Esau had put to the side, That, wow, this firstborn, this uh, uh, birthright is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, the death, burial, and the resurrection that that he now has given you and I that position. And then he goes on and says, which are written in heaven. There's another one of those phrases. Revelation talks about it. That we have a citizenship in heaven. That's what he's referring to. Uh, we live in Bristol, and there's registers. When I go to vote, they know Carl Henry lives at 51465 State Road 15 in Bristol, Indiana, and I can't come to Elkhart to vote because I've got to vote there because of the register. We have our names. We have a citizenship, and it is found in heaven. Yay. Are we glad? So, so which are written in heaven, the, 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 those who have the birthright, we have the position. And then he says, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men that have been made perfect. The word perfect means to be complete, finished, consecrated, come to the fullest position. And the spirits of men through the Lord Jesus Christ have come to that. And our God is the judge of all of these things, the living the dead, the righteous, unrighteous, saved, lost. Our God is the judge of all of them. And you will know, we, this, other places we talked about this, that all judgment by the Father has been designated, given over to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And that's why we know that the Bema Seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to be standing before Him because all judgment is given. But I believe also that Jesus Christ is going to be the one on the throne judging the lost at the great white throne judgment also because he is the one that died for their sin. He is the lamb they're representing. They can see his hands. 
They're going to be able to see the one who died for them, and that's why he is the, the qualified one to bring the judgment of the lake of fire upon them. So he is the God who is the judge of all. That, then verse 24 goes into t- talking about Jesus. And to Jesus, the mediator of the New Testament or covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. Now just pause right there. We had referred to Jesus as our mediator, high priest, even this morning, that we do not go to man to confess our sin. We go directly to our God. He is the one who was the forgiver of all sin. By the way, you remember that when Jesus said, your sins be forgiven you while he was on this earth doing the miracles, they said, you can't do that. Only God has the power to forgive sin. You got it. And he had every right and authority to say, your sins are forgiven. And that's what really they could not uh, grasp and, and get their minds wrapped around. That he is the one who is the mediator. Look with me. And each one of these verses, we could go back into the Hebrews to, to confirm this. But I want to just show you a couple. Look at chapter 9 of Hebrews and verses uh, 16 and 17. Um, and while you're there, I'm going to read one other. I'm reading 8.6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now 9.16 says, for, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So, the moment that Jesus Christ died and his blood was shed, that testament, which we are now in, the new covenant or agreement between God and man, this what we call the time period of grace, is now established, and he has put away the law as the old covenant between God, Moses, Israel, and all that would be involved as proselytes to the Jews, as that covenant of of, uh, the law was there, now Jesus Christ fulfilled what they couldn't do through the law because it couldn't give life. He is now the one that has given His blood, and this new agreement between God and man is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, the mediator. And that's why in Matthew 26, He says, this is the new testament, new covenant of My blood. And the moment Jesus Christ gave His life, and God looked at that blood... And he saw the fulfillment of the real from the shadow of the old, which was the lambs, the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. When God saw that one, he said, now I'm happy. Now it's fulfilled for mankind. That was a shadow. Jesus Christ was the real. And those who remember the book of Hebrews, we hammered that in chapter number 10. Once for all. That's what he did took care of our sin, the sin of the world, I believe from Adam on through, for the whole world, Jesus Christ died, so that we could have this agreement. And it was done by the sprinkling of blood. Now notice this in the last part of verse 24, that speaketh, in other words, the blood of Jesus Christ, speaks better things than that of Abel. 
And you say, why would he bring that up? Well, if you remember back in chapter number 11, when he was going through all of the heroes of the faith, guess who the first one is that's mentioned? Abel. And he was the one, it says, whose blood is speaking out. It's as though life is in the blood. And if you remember in chapter 11, verse 3, um, that, that uh, God testified of his gifts, and it, by it he being dead yet speaketh. Well, that life that was generated, if you will, able to communicate with God through death, when you look at, again, I want to take 10 minutes and explain that whole thing, and I don't have time to do that, but you remember, Cain, Abel. Cain, the one who was uh, wrong, self-righteous, despised the one who did it right through the blood, the, the sacrifice, and so forth. And so it's a picture of Jesus Christ and the innocent one being killed by the brother. Well, that's a picture of Israel killing the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was innocent. And as much as that cries out righteousness and innocence, how much more the blood of Jesus Christ cries out righteousness and innocence. It speaks volumes. It speaks louder of what our God has done for you and I. There again, that, that verse summarizes, if you will, the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? Verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not, now notice this phrase, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape, if we turn away or apostate from him that speaks from heaven. So, the Old Testament, we have Moses giving the law. Did Israel always obey the voice of Moses? which was ultimately the voice from God saying, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do, and they resisted, and what happened to them? If you go back to Hebrews chapter number 3, you'll remember that how many of them fell, their carcasses fell in the wilderness because they would not believe God. What did they do? They went into the promised land, those 12 spies. They saw it. They came back. And absolutely, just like God said, all the, the beautiful fruit, it flows with milk and honey. And it, we can't take it, though, because people are giants. And they convinced the people not to go in because of their sin of unbelief. Except Joshua and Caleb, they did get that privilege of going in. And so he's saying, listen... Those people that refused him under the law, under the Old Testament, who do we think we are in this age of grace if we refuse the voice of him that speaks from heaven? Now, guess what? Now we go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers uh, through the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The Son from heaven, who has created all things, is now the voice that speaks into the hearts and minds of the lost. And how could they even think that they're going to escape now under a better testament? A better time. It's, it's easier now than it was under the law. It's been paid in full. We've got a mediator. He's in heaven. He's interceding. Just call on him. He'll save you. And if we say, eh, nah, I don't think so, who do people think they are that they might escape such a thing? 
And my, we could go all over the place uh, to, to show this. But back in chapter number 10, look back with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Verse 28, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Zero mercy. He did or she did it wrong. They're dead. And there was no mercy. The stones were thrown or whatever means it was. Verse 29, Of how much sorer punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and is counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and is done despite unto the Spirit of grace. In other words, if they are seeing the blood of the covenant, understanding what Jesus Christ has done, and they say, no way, and they like throw it down to the ground, and just like it's not even worthy considering, and just trample underfoot and move on, what kind of a judgment would that kind of a person ha- be? Now, now here's the key. We're dealing with apostate. Those who know the truth are around it, and they dismiss it and walk right away from it. That's apostate. Judas Iscariot is a classic illustration of apostasy. Was around it, tasted it, saw it, smelled it, understood. He saw the miracles, and yet he never was in. He just walked away from it. And so many, sadly, we see. But in this, the last days, the apostasy... The falling away from truth is going to escalate more and more and more. So therefore, in the near future, uh, we're going to be taking a little study on what God calls the last days. And we're going to see some of those definitions, not what the guys out there that are writing books about it, but we're just going to draw right from the verses, right from the Bible. What does it say that we should be expecting in the last days? And we'll explain what the last days are at that time period. But apostasy is absolutely one of them, and they have literally rejected Jesus as their Messiah. He spoke from heaven, and they rejected it. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. Now, the then, okay, I'm going to get into the verses that are really hard now, okay? And I've gone this way, and then this way, and then this way, and then this way on these couple verses. And they're not easy, I'm going to admit. And five years from now, I may get my brain wrapped around it and say, with authority, this is what I believe it's teaching. And I'm going to give you a couple concepts, of, of, and you can take either of them. I think the second is applicable, but I think when we're looking at the flow of this text, I think he's still going back and forth between the old and the new. Okay, so the voice that then shook the earth would be the old. When Moses was on the mount, the voice of God shaking, the people were scared to death. I think that's pretty assured. Exodus speaks of that. And he has promised, saying, yet once more. Now notice down in verse 27, in this word, yet once more. Uh, the easiest way of saying it is there's yet one more shake to come. Okay? One more shake that's going to happen. They got it. It's the time of Moses. 
And there's going to be another shake that is going to be affecting, as it did at that time period, a literal shaking of this earth. The people were scared to death because of the voice of God and the thunderings and the quakes and everything that was happening. And he says, yet once more, now notice in verse 26 in the middle, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. One man, and and I understand, I don't think this is the actual, but I think you can absolutely give a, a neat application. And that's what this is. They felt, yeah, the law, when it came, it shook the earth. But, but this, the New Testament came with Jesus Christ, the new lawgiver, if you will. He didn't shake just the earth. He shook the heavens. And even when He came, we have the signs of the star in heaven. We have angelic beings. We have His birth. We have his death. It gets dark. I mean, the elements were absolutely affected. Even the ascension, going up into the clouds. And, and one man said that this the shaking of heaven by what Jesus did to establish the New Testament through the birth, the virgin birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then going off into heaven, into eternity. Pretty good. I like that. But I still think that there is reference to, not just the here and now, but, but something that's yet once more going to be happening, that's going to be shaking that which is here that isn't going to be. Because there's something, he says, that isn't going to be removed. And it's a kingdom. Okay, let's explain it. So verse 27 And this word, yet once more, now notice this, signifying the removal of those things that are shaken. Now what was talked about being shaken? The heavens and the earth. Now remember, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot, one tittle, nothing of my word is ever going to pass away. Uh, Peter talks about the elements being burnt In a fervent fire, the revelation talks about this removal, if you will, of the heavens and the earth. So eventually, there is going to be one more shaking of those things that are here as things that... Now notice this in verse 27, let me show you at the beginning. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are, notice this, made which are God's creation, period, okay? Remember, back in Hebrews chapter 1, when God's going through, Jesus Christ is better than, He's better than the angels, and there's an allusion to He is better even than the earth itself, because the earth is like an old cloth that is getting older and older and older and older, And that's exactly what God is constantly saying here at the beginning of Hebrews and at the end. This thing, this whole, it's it's going. (laughs) It's, It's getting older. And God's going to be taking it and removing is the word that he uses of those things that are shaken. That those things which, notice this, cannot be shaken 
may remain. I did neglect to give you where this phrase actually comes from. Haggai chapter 2 verse 16. Those who take notes. This is actually a reference in the Old Testament to what he is giving right here. And in that text, he's talking about the whole earth being uh, shaken. Uh, that even includes the, the sea in Haggai. And then he starts talking about the promised Messiah. So you can see that flow from Haggai. Now notice, something now, he says, cannot be shaken that it's going to remain. Well, what is that which is going to remain? Verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving, notice this, a kingdom which cannot be moved. Something's going to be removed, and something's going to stay. And what's going to stay is not the elements, the, the earth as we know it, and the stars as we know it, this universe as we know it, is going to be burned up. Uh, some as scientists would say, yes, but matter always will have to be here. Okay, so matter might be here, and then God's going to take that matter. And re- but he started with nothing at the beginning. <laughs> so if he wants to start all over again, he can do that because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Okay, so yeah, a lot of scientists say, well, he's just going to take that which is melted down and he's going to refigure the new, which, which sounds good. But the thing is, the new isn't going to have the sinful nature in it, right? So the sin nature is going to be lifted when uh, he makes all things new and the new heaven, the new earth. And that's when that sin is lifted and there's no more death and those things that were, uh, yeah. So we're dealing with eternity. Yeah. So whereby, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom, we received a spiritual kingdom, folks, the kingdom of God that is in the heart. That which, yeah, does it include the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, but it's, it's more vast. It's, it's the all in all. It's God in us. It is the kingdom of our God that is always going to be, even though our body dies, we're part of that kingdom. That kingdom that cannot ever be moved. The only way of moving that kingdom is to move our God. And that can't be done. Our God is one who stands. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. And He cannot weaken. He can't get stronger because He is the Almighty God. And He cannot be moved. Therefore, His kingdom cannot be moved. And as Jesus gave that promise against this the church that he is establishing, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, was a prophecy that is still being fulfilled, folks, in you and I. And as the church will remain until the time of the Gentiles is finally completed, and we are raptured out of here, and then that covenant with Israel and the Antichrist establishes the seven-year tribulation, as much as all of this comes into, into to pass, we know that the church will stand, the true church, until the day of Jesus Christ when He comes back for His bride. Do I hear an amen? So because this kingdom that we have, let us have then grace. From the law, let's not have the law, folks. Let's you and I establish our hearts, establish the church, establish our lives 
everything that we are part of, let it be established with grace. Not of the letter. Jesus took that, the letter and nailed it to the cross. It's done. It's over. Let's live in this grace. Whereby we may serve God. Whereby we may serve God. Isn't that neat? Whereby. By what? By grace. We have the privilege of serving God in an acceptable way. In a way that we are reverent. I'll explain that in a moment. And with a godly fear. Under the law, they had to have a fear like we wouldn't even understand. Because if they messed up, I mean, remember that time with the mount? If they touched the mount, they were to be taken out and they were to be killed right there on the spot. Just pierce them through, stone them, just kill them. They're off the scene. It was like they constantly lived in fear that, oh, if I mess up, I'm dead. You know? Constant fear. I mean, these guys, all they're doing is carrying the cart, the ark, and they put it on a cart instead of carrying it like the law said. And one guy sees the cart starting to rock in the ark. It's like, oh, we don't want the ark to... So he grabs the ark, and he got dead. He was trying to do a good thing, you know. He didn't want the ark to fall and bust into pieces. But they did it wrong in the first place. They didn't do it God's way, right? Achan. It was a simple thing. The first is God's, the rest of your, is yours. Everything you take and spoil, all the gold, the, the silver, the things, if there's oil, whatever's there, it's all yours. And he just couldn't resist. He sees this gold, the silver, oh, this is so good, just a little smidgen for me. And he puts it under the tent, hides it, and what happens? He and his family, in-laws, everybody, dead. That's the Old Testament. Aren't you glad we don't live under the old? That we are in the new. And yet because we have this freedom, we with this age of grace that we don't have to worry about the animals and the sacrifices and the high priests and all of these, the, the legalities of the new moons and the Sabbaths and oh, we could go on and on. He says we're in this grace and we get to serve God in grace now. Can you imagine how much time it took the Israelites to tear down camp, put camp back up, building temples, bringing the sacrifices, cleaning everything, the ceremonial cleansings, the baptisms, all the things that they had to go through, and we don't have all of that. It's like, here's how I see it. We are freed under grace to serve God and a fuller capacity than they ever had under the law. Because Jesus did the law for us. He fulfilled it all for us, so we are now freed to do it with grace. But with that grace, he also says it needs to be done that is acceptable. In other words, we don't have the the liberty with grace to do it our own way. We're still... Obey the voice of the Savior. Uh, we don't get to make the, the rules up on our own. We go to the Bible, the New Testament, the New Agreement, and we find out how do we do things now. Freer, with grace, absolutely, but we still need to do it that it is acceptable to God. 
hmm, don't I remember a verse, something about that in Hebrews in chapter number, that with, uh, chapter number 11, that without faith it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So if we're going to be acceptable to God, if God is going to look at this and be pleased with us, it needs to be coupled with faith. Everything we're doing is, Lord, are you in this? I believe you. I'm trusting you for these things. This week I was challenged. I was, in the last month I've been you know, just thinking about doing a couple of things. And I think the one decision I made was a, was a good one. You know, and, and I was going to make another decision. And I'm, and I'm driving down the road and I'm thinking, you know what, Carl? You never even prayed about it. I've been, you know, you plan things, right, guys? We think, oh, this would be the best way. Maybe this would save money if I did this and, do, you know, change things around. And you never even pray. I didn't even practice faith. And so guess what? I put all that to the side. This is like, i got to pray about this before I make any decisions because I have found when I do things ahead of God, it, it doesn't work. And what's really fun is when I do it my own way, God usually down the road, like the next day, Shows you, had you just waited for me, I had something a whole lot better for you if you just trusted me in the first place and let me do it for you. Oh, we never learn, do we? That's the stuff we live with. We walk in the Spirit. You know, we're, we're fulfilling the law of Christ and loving God and, and loving our neighbor. And yeah, we have these and we need to do it acceptable to our God. And that is also coupled with fear or, excuse me, a reverence. And the word reverence um, can be translated shamefacedness. And that's a word that this society, the, I'm sorry, the kids coming up, I'm getting old so I can say this, the kids coming up, I, I, you don't see it very often anymore. But I heard a preacher 25 years ago say the same thing about my generation. Okay, so nothing new under the sun. Um, have you ever said something in front of a young lady and you could see her face begin to get red? It was just like, oh, we don't talk about that. I'm, that embarrasses me. And it's just like, you can't make yourself do that. You know what I'm saying? It happens because of a reaction that's going on with your mind and your body that, that did, it triggered something and your face begins to get red. It's that thought, oh, we just, you know. And God says, we serve our God this time period of grace with a awe of who He is, with a shamefacedness that I would never want to do something that would be wrong against my God that would cause shame on him, or would be shameful for me to do. And then he goes on and says, and we do that with a godly fear. And there again, we've talked in Proverbs that how we, we understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we, we see where this, this fear of God is something that is a powerful thing, Fear is a good thing. We, we choose fear every time we're in a car and we have our foot on the accelerator and we're coming up on a corner. Fear takes the foot off of the accelerator and puts it on the brake because that's a, a good fear to have to govern or to control what we do or what we don't do. This fear is of God. That God... Is, is governing us in our lives of what we do permit or what we do not permit. And this is all under 
grace. And then he concludes, for our God is a consuming fire. Look back with me to Deuteronomy. We've got just a couple minutes yet where this came from. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 4. In this chapter, you'll remember that, well, actually this book, that this is the law given again. That's the thought of Deuteronomy. This is given to the people that were actually going to be going into the promised land because the people that were supposed to go into the promised land, they died. Why? Because of Hebrews 3, they didn't believe God. So now we have the next group coming in. In other words, the kids, you know, 19 under, they lived. And so now they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so Moses had to give them the law like all over again because they weren't there around the first time because they were too little. So let's give it to you again. Let's clarify it. And so he's exhorting them to obey. He's, Moses is appointing uh, the cities of refuge and so forth in this whole thing. Uh, let's just pick up verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God had forbidden thee. So in the text he's saying, stay away from idols. By the way, the New Testament, John closes one of his books down. My, my little children, keep yourself from idols. Don't allow things to be bigger than God in your life. And they consume you. And that's all you think about. And, and whether it's the money God of this day and age, or whether it's the, whatever God there is in your life, we've, we've got to cast those things down. Anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We cast those type of things down. and Because God's saying, listen, don't, don't you do that. Verse 24, 4 the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, and he adds, even a jealous God. I had a guy come to me uh, one day, and he said, there's this guy that keeps doing some things around my wife, and he goes, I don't like it. I said, good. He said, what do I do? Pray about it? But no, you go to him. You could just see the jealousy inside of this husband about this other guy acting wrong around his wife. I said, you have every right to go to this guy and say, stay away from my wife. This is my wife. It's not your friend. This is my wife. Stay away. He says, do I really have that right? Yeah, because that's what God just did to you and I. No other gods... We don't have the luxury of having more than one because God is a jealous God. And he was jealous for Israel. And every time they would go after other gods, he'd beat them up, bring them back to himself. And so he says to you and I in the New Testament, our God is a jealous God. And he wants our love. He wants our worship. Well, so does Satan. And that's what the idolatry is all about, worshiping Satan, if you didn't know that. Okay? It's things, it's, it's the, the tangible, the things that we can hold and we can see and the rocks and, and the nature. And God says, no, I made those things, worship me. And that's why I love one of the most beautiful illustrations of repentance in First Thessalonians chapter 1. He tells them how they turn to God from idols to serve the true living God. 
And that's exactly what that repentance was. And he's saying, listen, you do that. And, and he says, don't, don't forget that our God is a consuming fire, and He is a jealous God, and He wants our attention. How much was it under the law when He said that? But now in grace, He says it again to the world. To the world He is saying, to those who have apostated, fallen away from the truth, those of us who are Christians, those to the world, this is God saying to everybody, He is a consuming fire. He is a, a, a God that doesn't, in the Old Testament, and doesn't, in the New Testament, put up with sin. He just doesn't. And so what He says is, the fire is going to consume. What's interesting is, when we think of our God as fire, remember there was a pillar of fire that was our God leading Israel? Was that fire consuming them? No. It was actually comforting them. It was guiding them. So the fire to the believer is a comfort. Do you realize that in 1 Corinthians 3, God says that He is going to try our works even so by what? Fire. And those works that we have done... We as believers, if we know we're doing it right and the right intention and everything like that, we're going to be receiving from that same fire. The fire then is going to almost, if you will, purify the works that we have done that we would have a gift that we believe one day will be cast at the feet of Jesus Christ. But if those who are Christians and yet, I don't care what the Bible says, I know God just wants me to be happy so I can do whatever I want. I don't care what the Bible says. There's going to be a day you're going to be sorry. Because God is a consuming fire and the works that you may be doing could totally be consumed and you get zero reward for it. Our God is a consuming fire. To the world, it is the lake of fire that will be the final abode. The fire throughout the scriptures is mentioned. And that's what our God is. He is jealous of our worship. He is jealous over who He has created. And He wants us to understand this grace and to hold on to it and to hold on to Him who is the New Testament, who is the one who established it all, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, we did it. These are some verses, aren't they? What happens then when we get into chapter 13 is everything changes. We tonight concluded the heavy doctrinal part of the book of Hebrews. Then he, what he does is in chapter 13 he goes into social duties. Even I have to talk about myself a little bit. He actually talks about the, the, those who minister the Word and how they're to be treated and so forth. He gets into some, some you know, practical things as far as uh, the home in verse uh, uh, number uh, 4. Um, talks about the entertaining of angels and strangers. So we get into some of those practical things then of, of the book of Hebrews. And uh, I trust you'll, you'll appreciate that too. So to summarize the doctrine, Jesus Christ is better than anything. (laughs) He is. He's better than the angels. He's better than creation. He's better than the priests. 
He's better than the sacrifice. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than, better than, better than anything that you could possibly come up with in the religious realm because Christ fulfills it all. Our God is an awesome God. Father, we, we pray you'll bless what we have learned and we've studied out the book of Hebrews. And as we continue to read it and to study it, help us, Lord, to have this open heart looking for Jesus, not only in the page of he, pages of Hebrews, but in the pages from Genesis to the Revelation. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who is better than. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the one that even better than the sacrifice that Abel went through, there is nothing, no one, that can ever be compared to what you have done. We thank you for your grace that you have established. We thank you for this covenant that you have made with man, that it is a time period of grace. Help us, Lord, never to take that freedom, that liberty for granted. Help us, Lord, not to abuse it. Help us to realize that these, the liberties we have in Christ, are so that we can serve one another in a greater capacity, as we learn tonight, so we can serve you better. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time. Bless the reading of your word. And I pray, Lord, that, that we've been able to learn a thing or two this night. And I pray that you'll bless this, this invitation, Lord. It is yours, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Heads bowed and eyes closed. And my friend, if you are here and you are not saved, 